right, welcome to Carceral Studies Conversations, uh, where we have a dialogue that seeks to understand and illuminate carceral studies as a way of thinking and a system that organizes the complex systems and organizes our society, um, thinking about how they came to be, how they manifest now, and how to deconstruct these systems. Um, before introducing our guest, I want to introduce where we're recording from. And this recognition, especially in our in in our conversation today, I think is very important um, in the context of thinking about borders and ideas of belonging um, and space. So I am recording from the traditional lands of the Cato Nation and the Wichita and affiliated tribes, which was also part of the Muscogee Creek and Seminole Nations, now the University of Oklahoma. And my guest is recording from the Kickapoo, Miami, Potawatomi, Shawnee, and Delaware Nations at Indiana University. Our guest today is Liza Black, citizen of Cherokee Nation and an assistant professor of history and Native American Indigenous Studies at Indiana University. Her first book, Picturing Indians, Native Americans in Film, 1941 to 1960, looks at film as places of work and documents employment practices of both natives and non-natives playing Indians on screen. Her current research project is a history of the crisis of missing and murdered indigenous women in the United States, Canada, and Mexico, and highlights the lack of justice for the women and their families. Thank you so much, Professor Liza Black, for joining us today on Carceral Studies Conversations. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Good. Um, I'm excited for this conversation. And just to start us off, let's start with a broad, uh, big question. Can you define the carceral state? Yes, I can. But also, I'd just like to say that I'm really not, I, I never have thought of myself as a carceral state scholar. And there are certainly incredible intellectual giants in this field. But that being said, I'll, I'll take a shot at this question. So I think when we hear carceral state, we think right away about imprisonment and the imprisonment of, of people who have been convicted in our court systems. But we know that it sort of goes beyond simply prisons and prisoners. It includes, prisons include all kinds of facilities. Our, our military has prisons. Um, we have detention centers at the borders. We have facilities for incarcerating young people. We have um, county jails. We have city jails. We even have house arrest. So there's sort of all sorts of physical embodiments of imprisonment today. And I think the carceral and state includes that spectrum of facilities, but it also includes surveillance. And this is often, as we know, done by law enforcement it's also done in schools where I was, um, I was somewhere with my kids and saw pictures of police officers doing canine dog demonstrations at primary schools. And it made me think about how the carceral state is present in that moment as well, where law enforcement is being valorized. These dogs are being valorized. And as the dogs are sort of demonstrating their ability to locate drugs, it's sort of reinforcing criminality. We also are seeing examples of kids being arrested on campus, even small children. Just recently, there was um, an African-American child 
who had um, a, a, a bit of a tantrum in the morning at school and the police came and they put handcuffs on this child and, and took the child out to the, the police vehicle. I don't think that sh she was taken to jail, um, but that was terrifying for her. So that's, that's an example of the carceral state as well. But then even panning out more, I would say that the carceral state really includes the court system and really just law as a whole, which would mean criminal court, civil court, family court. These are all places where people without resources are criminalized. And very often that's people of color, that's women, that's folks from the queer community, the disabled community. So I think that the carceral state embodies or includes, I should say, such a spectrum of spaces, but also techniques and really belief systems and ideologies. There's, there's such a sense in our society of, about criminality and, and who is criminalized and who deserves justice and who deserves mercy. And all of that is built upon inequality. So that's from my non-specialist <laughs> viewpoint. Great. No, I think I think as a non-specialist, those three of the sort of spaces, the techniques and the ideologies really, really hit on how the carceral state is can be an all encompassing all um, everywhere um, system. So do do you have an example from your research that stands out that illuminates the system of spaces, techniques and beliefs that perpetuate uh, control? of people? Yes, absolutely. So I'm writing a new book on a very different topic than the first book. The first book's about movies. The second book is about murder. And so from my new book, I have two examples, I think, that stand out. So the first is from the story of Savannah Greywind and her daughter, Hazley Joe. And in this piece I wrote about the Greywind family, I contextualized Savannah's death and her daughter's abduction in light of the dispossession of both of Savannah's tribes on the plains, as well as family separation policies in the United States and Canada. So in this piece, I don't say the names of her murderers, and I also don't show the pictures of her murderers and her daughter's abductors. And when I recently gave a talk on this at the Western History Association meeting just a week or two ago, I only got one audience question. And the question was, where are Savannah's murderers? And the answer is that they're in prison. But my, my thought or my response to this person was, it made me wonder if they were suggesting that justice had been served because the murderers are in prison. And then it also made me wonder if this person felt more interested in the murderers rather than Savannah and Hazley. I don't know the answer to that question, but that was sort of my intellectual reaction because I had so carefully laid out who Savannah was sort of as a, a teenager and as a young woman, who she was in terms of her relationship with her boyfriend and her parents and her siblings. And then who she was as a citizen of these two tribes who had been dispossessed on the plains and also who had suffered from the federal government's family separation policies through boarding schools. So I found it really curious that the audience 
was so interested in the murderers rather than Savannah or her tribal nations. And it does seem to me that true crime fans are fascinated with murderers. And in a sense, this really supports the carceral state. Um, and I'm just really not that interested in true crime. I mean, I'm interested in it to the extent that it gets me information that I want about certain cases, but I'm not interested in glorifying um, criminal pathology or criminal criminal psychology, all of which to me sort of, yeah, so it ends up supporting the carceral state. It would seem that it's not, but it but in the end, it does. So so I would say Savannah's life and death is an example of how the carceral state has totally disempowered indigenous people and totally rendered their lives meaning not meaningless, but as having no value, as having no value. I mean, one example from Savannah's case is that within like an hour or an hour and a half of Savannah going missing, her mother started calling 911. She wouldn't stop calling. She wanted them to find her daughter and she had an idea of where her daughter was. The police were, the dispatch officers, I should, should say, were totally cold to her, totally dismissive of her, and even stopped recording her 911 calls. And, it, and they admit that they were yelling at Savannah's mother. So not only do, does the carceral state cre uh, create violence right, against victims, but in fact, they don't protect many victims from violence. So that's, that's my first example is Savannah Graywin. The second is a person I'm writing about now. And I found this person when I was looking into an attempted murder of a Native American woman in Eastern Oklahoma in the early 20th century. And I found very little about her, but I have found a lot about the Native American man who attempted to murder her. And what I have found is that man spent time in federal prison. In fact, he spent six years in federal prison. And I believe that I have found evidence that he was framed, blackmailed, and or falsely imprisoned by an attorney and a U.S. district court judge in Oklahoma who decided that they wanted his land and or the mineral rights to his land. So this was a man who received an allotment, but even when he received his allotment, an attorney actually claimed his allotment and his attorney or an attorney took that allotment claiming he was his attorney in fact. And then from there, the attorney sold rights to the, sold the mineral rights out from under him. And then I believe the attorney accused him of murder and had him sent to prison so that they could take the rest of his land. And this man was in prison, this Native American man was in prison for six years, writing letters virtually nonstop the entire time he was there. He was writing letters because he knew that they had stolen his land. So he spent his entire life trying to reverse this wrong. And when he got out, that is when he attempted murder of this Native American woman. And then this judge bought that woman's land through the attempted murder because the judge made the attempted murderer her guardian. 
So <laughs> there's the carceral state at work in Eastern Oklahoma in the early 20th century. And just one more thing that's sort of fascinating about this particular case is I'm in conversation with two of his descendants. And it's so, so sad to see the despair, I think, that imprisonment causes to imprison people and to their families. I, I think that imprisoning people causes deep shame in that person and also in their families and in their descendants. Yeah. Wow. Those are, those are quite powerful examples. Um, and that idea of shame as a, as not only in that individual, but lasting through generations is powerful. And, and I'm interested in these examples because in, in the second one, in the, in the example of the murder in Oklahoma, the carceral state, I mean, there are these ideas that legality or crime is very clearly a social construct. It is constructed in this case for the purpose of dispossessing this individual of land and you can see very clearly the goal of these carceral practices of incarceration is motivated by economics by gaining land in the first example of Santa, savannah graywind and hazley joe that goal is a little bit less clear um it's is the goal to almost dehumanize these native people or is that just the product of what happens? Mm, that's a great question. I don't, I don't know that the goal is to dehumanize native people, but certainly that belief, those beliefs are already present in law enforcement. Um, even, even the person, even the prosecutor in, in Savannah's case would make racist comments. Um, she said something like, Oh, well, we, we thought that Savannah was off the res. I mean, off the res is a, is a totally racist phrase that, that is rooted in settler colonialism and the idea that native people have to be on the reservation. And it's just, it, it's deeply racist and it sort of communicates all sorts of negative beliefs about native people amongst not between non-natives when it's used. Um, Perhaps I should be more explicit, too, about Savannah in that I also think that Savannah's case is deeply connected to family separation policies, which I would now that I'm thinking about it in terms of the carceral state, I would say the carceral state also includes the boarding schools where Native children were violently sometimes and, and forcibly taken from their parents, right? The, the federal government said this was legal said this was legible, and yet this was never accepted by Indigenous people, and this caused incredible trauma to those children who were separated from their parents. So the other aspect of Savannah's case is this idea that Native families don't deserve to be families. So the carceral state, perhaps, says that only non-Native people have a right to Native children, that Native parents don't have a right to their own children. And um, Savannah was, was murdered by these people taking her, taking her baby from her body. That is how Savannah passed. So they lived in Savannah's apartment building. Savannah was only a few weeks away from her due date. But this woman, especially was a couple that did this to her, the woman especially was just obsessed with having a baby. And the woman studied 
how to perform a C-section. She, she left all of this evidence in her journals. So um, I don't know that that really clearly connects to the carceral state, but, but it must in some way, especially if you think about boarding schools and the ideology that promoted and supported boarding schools, which is always being talked about in terms of assimilation, but it seems to me it's just as much, maybe more so, about family and, and legitimate families. Yeah, I think that's a great point that there's this historic uh, path you can trace directly both a logic and a practice with indigenous history from um, boarding schools, allotment to murdered and missing indigenous women now about what constitutes a legitimate and protected or valuable family. So I, I appreciate that you've mentioned a few times you're not the expert in carceral studies. Um, and, and before this conversation, as we were talking, you told me you didn't see yourself as a carceral state scholar before we started talking. And now looking at it through this lens, there's different ways of thinking, um, different things that are illuminated. And I wanted to ask, how does studying indigenous history broaden our understanding of the carceral state, tying together these ideas of settler colonialism, family, empire, law, policing? Um, does being a scholar of indigenous history make you a scholar of the carceral state? Great question. And I would have said no before this in invitation. But the more I think about these things, I see I see the intersections here. And I feel like the logic and praxis of the carceral state perhaps goes back to those very first encounters between Europeans and indigenous women and, and the sexually violent nature of those encounters. And, and the very first one we can think about and talk about here is Columbus himself when he documented the rape of an indigenous woman, a, a really quite brutal um, and, and horrifying rape. I mean, my students have a very hard time reading that excerpt from his diary. And I think that the logic there from the very first moments of contact between, in, the, in this case, Spaniards and indigenous women, is that Native women are expendable that Native women are overly sexualized, that Native women lack social value from this logic. And then that becomes this idea about motherhood, where that you see this logic that Native people don't deserve to raise their own children. And you see that resulting in this praxis of taking children, Native children, from their parents and encoding that in the law. I mean, it was illegal for Native parents to raise their children at a moment in time in this country. And that decision was made by a government foreign to Native people. Now, in terms of boarding schools, I keep saying this, but um, I think it bears repeating that boarding schools aren't just a space where Native kids are being surveilled and Native kids are being forced to accept a foreign belief system and a foreign logic. It's also a place where Native children are basically incarcerated. Now, this isn't the, the case for all boarding schools, and there's certainly a literature out there that 
testifies to the sort of positives and the community, the intertribal communities that were created because of boarding schools. But but in terms of thinking about the carceral state, I think that boarding schools absolutely were a carceral space. I mean, there's there's the image or the the material object from Haskell that we believe is um, handcuffs for a child, just these tiny little handcuffs. That is just an embodiment, a physical embodiment of carceral spaces. So the other aspect that I think we can take away from this intersection of the carceral state and indigenous history is the history of native children being taken away from their parents after the boarding schools mostly came to an end. And by that, I mean social workers, adoption attorneys, and family court taking native children from their parents, sometimes without their parents' knowledge. These social workers would, well, in Canada, social workers would place ads in newspapers advertising these kids. And the parents wouldn't even be told. They wouldn't even know. So there's a real continuity here in terms of making the Native family essentially illegal. Wow, yeah, that's 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 a lot. That's interesting um, that there is that continuity and that it's so public. Um, the boarding schools were obviously written in law. Um, and afterwards, you have social workers and what some would call the child welfare system, um, um, if you want to use that term. Um, but it's both legal and it's public. And it's specifically this gendered form of violence against a family. And I want to follow up because you mentioned you've seen evidence of these advertisements in Canada and your new work covers North America, what's now the U.S., what's now Canada and Mexico. How is this this crisis of murder and missing indigenous women and this idea of family control a transnational product? How do the ideas of borders or local jurisdictions um, play into this history? Yeah, that's a great question. And I feel more confident in talking about the U.S. and Canada. And we know that the U.S. and Canada have a tremendous amount in common in terms of their government policies toward Native people. And the outcomes have been very similar in Canada and the United States, perhaps as a result of the similarity in policy against Native people, meaning the violence against Native women in Canada is immense, and the vast majority of it is done by white male assailants. And that is true in the United States as well. And perhaps that needs to be said, that the crisis of missing and murdered Indigenous women is highly unusual. If you look at crime statistics for ethnic groups in the United States and Canada, Native women absolutely jump out in terms of the statistics, both in terms of the rate at which violence is perpetrated against Native women, but also that it's almost always interracial and not intraracial. So this is extremely unusual. And, and I think that that is because colonization never ended in these countries. In the United States and Canada, these are not post-colonial societies. These are still colonial societies in that Native people never um, got their land back. Native people are still struggling and fighting to be truly sovereign. And so to me, this is a direct outcome of that historic 
colonial violence continuing in gendered violence against Native women. And I think, too, Native women and girls are really sort of seen as a roadblock to capitalistic exploitation. And I know sort of capitalism, I don't know, is necessarily in sort of intrinsic to the carceral, to the critiques around the carceral state. But I just, I think it's important to highlight that with Native people, they are seen as standing in the way of, of capitalist progress. And their bodies are seen as standing in the way of the exploitation of, of their land. So I think perhaps this is why it's a transnational product uh, process and outcome. In terms of Mexico and Central and South America, it's clear that there's a crisis there. It's very clear. Um, it's very easy to find that these conversations are going on currently about the crisis of violence against Indigenous women in, in all of these countries. However, what I've noticed is that the border seems to stop political conversations and connections between activists and scholars in the U.S. and Canada and activists and scholars in Mexico, Central and South America. I'm not seeing a lot of conversations going on in, in that sense, in terms of activism or scholarship. And perhaps that's simply because Spanish is the dominant language and English is the dominant language here. And so people just can't communicate in terms of not having that language capacity. Um, I've also noticed that in Mexico, at least, they don't, I don't see this acronym of MMIW, which really comes out of Canada. So the border does seem to be um, stopping these conversations from happening, but it, they are happening for sure. Undoubtedly, they are happening south of the United States border, and they tend to use this term femicide. So rather than saying missing and murdered indigenous women, they tend to use this term femicide. Um, and I'm also hearing people talking about how this is a recent phenomenon and that perhaps it's rooted in the drug cartels. Um, as a historian, I just have a sort of knee-jerk reaction against that. I don't like the idea that something is that superficial, that this crisis of violence is that recent and superficial that's just hard for me to accept. Um, and so I, I, when I do start my research on this, I'll be looking for something for historical roots, not, not simply the drug cartels. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. I'm excited to see, I'm not excited, but I'm interested to see where that those historical roots are. And I want to follow you. I mean, you emphasize this point, colonization never ended in the Americas and North Americas. And I think that's so important that it's this ongoing process. It's this ongoing project that both embodies this historical trauma and perpetuates it into the future. And I want to turn to a question, um, on something you mentioned earlier about how in your presentation on um, Savannah Greywind and Hazley Joe, people were interested, or the audience at, at the conference was interested in the perpetrator, um, not necessarily the tribal ideas, the family, those ideas of justice. And obviously justice is different than incarcerating someone. Um, so how have the communities and the people you study defined or conceptualized justice 
This is such a great question. And let me just start by talking about Sarah Deer. So Sarah Deer is an attorney and a law professor and a citizen of Muscogee Creek Nation. And she wrote a really important book called The Beginning and End of Rape, just an incredible book that I've read a million times and taught a million times. And when she talks about justice in in this book, she talks about tribal laws, historically tribal laws that address rape by empowering the victim to choose the punishment, right? So it would be a victim-centered punishment, and it would be community-supported, that the community would support the victim and ensure that what the victim called for was carried out. And that gave the victim sort of a huge range of possibilities of what they could ask for. So I would say that Deer is advocating for tribal sovereignty and she's advocating for tribes to be in a position to deter crimes against Native women and girls. However, you know, this, this, how do I put this? The question of justice in the context of missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls is really difficult. We're living through this moment where there are profound and meaningful and compelling reasons to abolish the police. And we're all quite swayed by that logic which advocates for the end of policing as we know it. And yet at times in conversations about justice and solutions to the crisis of missing and murdered Indigenous women, you'll start to sort of hear talk about increasing policing. This This is quite common to hear that we don't have enough tribal police. We need more. And in fact, I just went to a, a panel yesterday that Sarah Deer was speaking on with a number of other people about this very question. And they really wrestled with it. My answer would be that, well, first of all, I think for the families of the victims, their, their sense of justice from what I've seen is that they simply want to know where their loved ones are. Many of them don't know if their loved ones are missing or not. And many of them never are are still looking for the actual body of their loved one. So they're simply quite literally looking for the body of their loved one for burial, for ceremony. And I don't know that they would call that justice. They simply need to know the state of their loved one. But to the question of what would justice ultimately be, I don't see how it could be more policing. I think there's just so much compelling and convincing evidence to the contrary. And I, I think, though, that our answer has to be a bit different from the abolished police answer in that Native women are being attacked by and large by white male assailants. So the answer to the question has to somehow address that and has to somehow give someone the authority and the willingness to prosecute men who have been made illegible as criminals, right? 
I think there's our legal system when it comes to native people has rendered white men innocent before they've even committed a crime, that they're ontologically innocent. And it seems to me that that's the issue, not so much do we need more police, do we need less police? We need a system in which it's believable that a non-Native man attacked a Native woman, and that needs to matter. It needs to matter that she was injured by a non-Native man. Because when a Native man attacks her, he is often arrested. That often results in arrest. But it almost never happens in the reverse. That's so interesting. Um, there's there's a lot to build on there, and I, I have so many follow-up questions, but I want I want to... I want to ask a question that's a closing question. It's, it's related. Um, it can be related to the idea of justice. Um, what, what makes you hopeful today? We'll, we'll end with that question. We'll end with some positivity after this heavy conversation. Um, and this can have to do with justice or anything, but what makes you hopeful? Um, I, I have, I'm actually known for being perpetually optimistic and, and upbeat. Um, I I have a hope in a lot of things. And honestly, this year I have had hope in TikTok. I think TikTok is one of the most radical places in America right now. And if you don't believe me, just, just believe this. President Trump wants to destroy it. I also have tremendous hope in Gen Z. I think Gen Z is absolutely fantastic. Um, and they love TikTok. I, I have hope in my kids. I have great hope in my kids. I have great hope in the families of victims who will never stop looking for their loved ones and never stop showing their love for these women. And in the activists who are advocating for these families, I have great hope in them. I have great hope in Sovereign Bodies Institute. This is a fantastic organization devoted to documenting and helping these women and their families. Um, I have hope in the earth itself, believe it or not. And I have hope in our elders. So I could think of many more, but uh, from TikTok to elders, I have great hope. I love that. I love that <laughs> in these moments, you can have so much hope. I, I love that. Um, this was great. This is this has been a wonderful conversation. It's obviously I've gotten to ask you a good number of questions, but it leaves me with so many things to think about, um, which I think is the mark of a good conversation. So thank you so much for being in dialogue today and for sharing your research and your ideas and your thinking. Thank you so much. You, you asked great questions and you were a great interviewer. Thank you. Thank you.